Welcome to the Woodshop Life Podcast, a bi-weekly podcast focused on the craft of woodworking. I'm Guy Dunlap from Guy's Woodshop, and I'm joined as always by Hui Huen, also known as the Alabama Woodworker. Say hello, Hui. Hello, Hui. Or Guy. <laughs> All right. And Sean Walker, creator of Simple Cove. Hello, Guy. Hello, Hui. How are you guys doing tonight? Good. Doing well. Good. So this podcast is intended to answer questions from the woodworking community and give you some of our own perspectives on how we get things done in our shops. And we also have a Patreon campaign. And right now we have one level and we are simply asking for a small donation just to try to cover the cost of bringing you this podcast. So please go to patreon.com backslash woodshoplife. And just as always, remember, we really need questions. So the more questions we get, the more questions we can answer, I guess, is the yep, math bottom line of that. So stay tuned to the end of the show to hear about what we've got going on in our shops. And uh, let's get right into it. And we, you've got the first question. Okay. This is from Matt, and he, I believe, is from Hawaii. He says, Aloha, boys. I have a question about managing humidity and rust in the wood in the workshop. I live in Hawaii. There you go. <laughs> and have my workshop in a detached garage. Most buildings here include my workshop, including my workshop, have Jalousi style windows. I believe I'm pronouncing that uh, correctly. And I can't completely seal and temperature control my shop. I am spraying or wiping down my larger tools with T9. T9 is a rust inhibitor, T9 bow shields, and other rust inhibitors. But many of my other various tools and equipment are quickly rusting. Outside of temperature controlling a shop, any other tips, tricks, or ideas are silicone gel packs a waste of money? Would it be crazy to put rubber weather sealing on cabinet doors? Maloha, boys, you are the best. Well, Matt, you are in a very unique situation right so these 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 style windows that he's talking about are kind of like louvered windows um and it allows for a good amount of airflow along the coast and in this case it's hawaii um yeah t9 bow shields that sounds great um i personally have used bow shields and i didn't really like it that much not because of its ability to inhibit the rust but more so that it kind of just left it a little bit sticky and i kind of yes. felt as though it made the material kind of yep. grab um so i just stopped using it and just use paste wax and i use that pretty regularly i'd say about maybe once a month i kind of give a little touch on my uh, bandsaw joiner planer and my table saw but i have a cabinet i have a tool cabinet and i think all of us have like either drawers or tool cabinets um that I keep my hand planes in. And one of the things that I do is I actually, after I use my hand tools, uh, I just get all the sawdust off of them. You know, just a quick brushing. And then I lightly just hit it with a little bit of mineral oil uh, to try to inhibit some of the rust from forming. I think there's some other fancier stuff that um, Lee Nielsen sells, which is jojoba oil is that That's right right yep. oh look at that jojoba oil um i just use mineral oil uh because i got a lot of it 
a small bottle, you know, use it for a laxative too. I don't. Um, (laughs) (laughs) You can, but You can, you can. I think it's actually a good idea if you've got a little like cabinet or drawer that you can seal with, uh, with rubber sealing, uh, desiccant is, um, I think that's the name for a generic name for it. no silica silica gel is the generic name i think desiccate is well whatever it's it's silica gel um and you can buy packs of them you can even buy them in like socks or sleeves i, I would probably just keep that in a cabinet i would probably that i don't think it's going to be very effective if it were kind of out in the open but i yeah i would give it a try because that's really what it's there for is to absorb the moisture in the air and maybe try to seal that cabinet door or the drawers. Guy, what do you what do you do? What do you uh, do to prevent I, 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 rust from forming on some of your tools? I don't have any problems like that here, with you know really really bad humidity. He's he's not he's not only in a very humid area, but there's also a lot of salt, salt. air, mm-hmm. so it's, it's it's very corrosive. Right uh, is the other thing. So. I've used uh, the the T nine bow shield or whatever the heck it's called. I always had good luck with it. Yeah, and then I had a can of it that lasted me probably ten fifteen years because it just keeps going and going and going. And when that ran out, I just started using regular old Johnson's paste wax. Yeah, and it works just fine on the hand tools. If I use them, I've just got a, a, a rag and I've got a, a like a little spray bottle with some kind of oil in it. It could be jojoba oil. I have no idea. I bought it at Woodcraft years ago. It was like 10 bucks and it's yellow. That's all I know. And it's got some Japanese writing on it. I think that's jojoba oil. Yeah, it probably <laughs> is. So I just spray a little bit of that on a, on a paper towel and wipe the thing down and put it on the shelf because I don't use them that much. But for the most part, I mean, short of moving, you're always going to have that problem, I think. And I think you, the, the only way to really mitigate it is by putting some type of coating on the, on the equipment, whether it's wax or jojoba oil or mineral oil. Now, you said mineral oil could also be used as a laxative weed. <laughs> could you use like a regular laxative? Is that the same thing? I, you mean like medication? Yeah. <laughs> Why are we even entertaining? I don't know. You brought, up, you brought up laxatives. <laughs> well, mineral oil is a laxative. Okay. I'm just wondering. It's been a long why, time. I'm just wondering why you, why you brought up laxatives. I, I grew up in uh with an adopted family that adopted me when i was in when they were in their 70s and i can remember uh oh drinking mineral oil oh that's like, nasty like no joke i <laughs> i have drank in it before. all right we let's uh, before you get too far down that path let's get back on rust <laughs> I, I, I think sean uh let's kick the question over to you i think you guys have nailed it um including the uh, mineral oil i'm, I'm not going to touch on that but yeah, uh, keep everything oiled. I use the jojoba oil for hand tools. I use paste wax for everything else. I, like you guys, do not have rust issues at all. I've, I can't, t- the only time that I wax now is because when boards are sticking going through the planer. Yeah. That's the only time that I wax. It's not due to rust. 
Well, I use the the oil on the hand planes and stuff just because I'm I'm afraid that the the grease and moisture from my fingers yeah. will cause rust. Yeah. yeah, 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 yeah. I guess what I'm saying is like through the power planer and that that waxing. Yeah. yeah, you know, Matt. I mean, if you're doing that regularly, about the only thing that I can think of would be to dehumidify your shop. But I don't know how well that's going to work if it's not, you know, depending on how non airtight it is, I guess, depending on the, the condition of it. I don't know. Well, I'm sure a dehumidifier would help. I mean, just the air conditioner acts as a dehumidifier. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> May, yeah. Well, outside of temperature control in my shop. So now I think that our, our silicon gel packs, I, I guess how, I don't know what the gel packs would do for things like power tools or is he only talking uh, about hand tools? I, well, you know, I think he, I think he has a mit, mitigation for the bigger tools, which is the T9, Pace Wax. I think we can all assume that there's oh, really okay. no way gotcha. of him completely sealing off his shop and mm. therefore using the desiccant or the silica. I mean, you just... You, so it's a smaller tools, it's hand tools. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. I, I wonder if, if he added some insulation, would that help? I, I doubt it. Yeah. You still got to get yeah, there in the shop. It's got to come from somewhere. Yeah. yeah if so, you add insulation, it's only going to make it warmer in there too. So I don't think it'd be yeah. some fun place well, to work. I, yeah. I mean, it's a tough question and, and it's hard for me to answer really completely because I've never been faced with that situation. I, I think a good place to start may be if there's like a local woodworking club. And talk mm. to these younger guys that may be in your area and ask them what they do. Maybe get some yeah. tips from them. Because yeah. I don't think any of us really have the the the, the problem that that you do, Matt. Yeah, yeah. If it were me, the first thing I would tackle would be temperature controlling it. I mean, outside of that, you're just gonna be chasing it. And yeah, yeah. Well, yeah. that salt and humidity, man. That's yeah, that's tough. Yeah. All right. Sean, you got the next one. All right. This is from Terry. First off, I want to say how much I've enjoyed listening to your podcast over the past year or more. With the right balance of instruction and interaction between the hosts, it's both informative and entertaining. Well, hopefully, Terry, you got something out of Hui's uh, mineral oil story. Uh, I've been woodworking for quite some time, and I ran across something I never experienced before and was hoping you might have some insight. I'm building a floor lamp with three curved legs as a base. I made a template for the leg profile out of quarter-inch hardboard. I'm using a straight pattern bit on the router table. I was able to easily create three legs out of quarter or three quarter inch plywood for the prototype. Happy with the design I used for the template to trace out the legs on some three quarter inch walnut. I then rough cut out the legs on the bandsaw, leaving a sixteenth of an inch material outside of the line. From there, it was back to the router table where I attempted to flush cut the legs using a template and a straight pattern bit. This gave me no trouble at all when routing the plywood prototype legs, but as soon as I carefully eased into the walnut, it immediately caught and tore out. I purchased a quarter-inch spiral flush trim bed, and I also used a starting pin, but the results were the same. I continued to get bad catches and tear out no matter how carefully or slowly I went. In all my years of woodworking, I've never run across anything like this. Any ideas on what I could do different? Thanks, Terry. Well, uh, I guess the, this is, there's not a whole lot to this. There's, let's see, there's not a whole lot of different answers to this. So I'm going to just tackle a couple and pass it off to you guys. So y'all have a little bit of meat on the bone as well to talk about. Um, but obviously Terry, the main thing that you're going to want to look at is you're going to have to read the grain. Um, 
go with the grain, not against it. So to achieve this, make sure to feed the piece in the right direction. That's, you know, I'm sure many years of woodworking, that's kind of a, well, no crap, Sean, I did that. So I think I have a little bit of help for you here. Uh, So try to buy, what I like to do is I try to buy the uh, the flush trim bits that have the top and the bottom bearings. So if I do have a catch, flip it over, raise or lower the bit accordingly, and then run the piece through there, referencing the opposite bearing. And this will save me about 99% of the time. You, you know, you already mentioned leaving about a 16th of an inch of the material before flush trimming. You know, that's pretty darn good in my opinion. That's close enough, but I'm guessing probably what you're having here is a bore that has some gnarly grain. You probably pick some really nice pieces for the legs and and there's no perfect way to cut this using a flush trim bit. When I have these issues, I tend to go back or go to the spindle sander and get as close as I possibly can to the template before taking the rest of it away with the router table. And I'd like to get, I mean, if I'm having some crazy grain, I'll get to a 32nd of an inch and then go back to the router table. So I'm just barely removing stuff. And even then it's not perfect depending on the grain. There's one thing that I don't know if it's recommended to do at the router table, and I'm going to I'm gonna ask Guy this, um, but one of the other recommendations, depending on what Guy says, is I don't know if you can use something like a denatured alcohol to soften the grain before running it on a router table. I don't know. Is that a no-no on power tools and, and the wood having being damp from something like denatured alcohol? I don't, I don't think it's a no-no, and I don't think it's going to help. Oh, yeah? Why is that? No. Because he's 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 running the when you when you have a router table and you're doing pattern routing, it's not even really it, it part of it is reading the grain, but he says he's making curved legs. And mm, as yeah. soon as he said as soon as you said that, I, I know what the problem is. I think I do anyways. I'm pretty sure. What's happening is is he's you've got to go downhill. So let's say you've got a curve. You have to go from the high point down to the low point. You can't go from the low point to the high point because you are going against the grain going uphill, if that yeah. makes sense. Yeah, I, th- I think the best in his situation, I think the best is to do what you said earlier, Sean, which is to get that bottom and top bearing bit, Yeah. flip that, flip that piece upside down, having the template on the bottom so now he can go downhill on that inside curve. There are some router bits out there, like um, Whiteside makes a bit that's, it's what they call a, a, a compression bit. Yeah. And there's flutes that run both uphill and downhill. So it's an upcut and a downcut spiral bit all at the same time. Yeah. So it doesn't matter for the most part. It doesn't matter where you're going uphill or downhill with the bit. And it's a pretty no. looking bit too. Yeah, it and it's a pretty expensive bit. Yes. They make one. Infinity makes one also, but I, it, it's not really a compression bit. They've yeah. got dual flutes yep. that are just going different ways. It's kind of yeah. funky looking. William, Whiteside also makes a bit for William Ng. Mm-hmm. Out in California, they call the Big Daddy, yeah, which is a compression style bit that that they that he designed and they make for him. That's pretty mm. good too. That's also very expensive. <laughs> That's yes, also it is. very. Expensive. Well, I, almost bought, I almost I almost bought once. Yeah, I mean, any good router bit's going to be. It's not going to be cheap. I think those 
Whiteside calls it like the ultimate pattern routing bit or something like that, or the ultimate something like that. Yeah, the ultimate flush trim bit. The ultimate flush trim bit. They're like 180 bucks. Yeah. I have the the one from Bits and Bits. And I, I mean, the thing about those bits is you're not, it's not like a good table saw blade. You're not running hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of board feet through it. Yeah. So they last yeah. a really long time. Yeah. 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 Yeah, the Big Daddy pattern bit is about 160. Oh, that's not bad. Yeah, the Infinity, and, and you're you're exactly right about the Infinity. It it it, it kind of has like, it's not really a compression bit. It has no, uh, straight blades going in one direction and straight blades going the uh, like uh, uh, yeah. climbing up. We we have one of those at work that we use to do some hand pattern routing with, with a handheld router. Yeah. And it actually works pretty good. Uh, the infinity. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, It actually works pretty decent. I have, uh, I have the, uh, what the heck is it? Um, white side, the white side, uh, compression bit, man, that thing is nice. Yeah. I've got one of those too. We, like I said, but for like handheld stuff that we're doing like inch and a half thick. Oh yeah. Yeah. For sure. Which that, the, the, uh, White side bit won't do. It's only thirteen six. It's only a little over an inch. Yeah, or it's fifteen sixteenths or something like that. Yeah. Anyways, this bit's like you know two inches long. Yeah, yeah. And uh, that's what we use it for. But it works pretty good. But it's a it's a very common problem he's having, which is going uphill with with the router. But you just can't do that. It's just gonna grab and tear out and all kinds of nasty stuff yeah don't do it don't want the the best i think i think the best solution is really that bottom and top bearing bit and just get one long enough that that you'll be able to clear your material all right terry hopefully that helps guy go ahead and tell us what you got for your first question okay this question comes from sean at oh turpax T-E-R-P-A-X. I'm assuming that's his... Instagram. Instagram. Hmm. So it says, hey guys, thankfully this question is not very time sensitive, so hopefully you can get to it before I need to take your answers into consideration. (laughs) My wife and I are in the process of redesigning our kitchen that is in need of a serious facelift. We plan on contracting out the plumbing and electrical. Unfortunately, we aren't doing any structural modifications to the house itself. Our current debate involves the cabinetry. I'm a fairly competent woodworker and love a good challenge. Personally, I'd rather take the money we would pay a cabinet shop to build and install new cabinets and make some needed upgrades and additions to my own workshop to do them myself. I'm not a fan of raised panel design, so I'll probably do uh, more shaker style cabinets. I have a saw stop contractor saw, 14 inch bandsaw, 13 inch planer, basic router table, bench top drill press, and an older model Festool track saw, plus various other hand tools. Considering I expect to save somewhere in the range of five to 10K by doing it myself, it's probably a lot more than that, (laughs) Sean. What additional tools would you recommend? As specific as you'd like to be would be great if you have the machines you've been very happy with. On a side note, we had to take down a large white oak in our backyard, and I plan to have it milled up and kiln dried to continue its life on our property. 
Thanks for your time and continued insight to help us all become better woodworkers. Sean at Turpax. So his question is, basically, I'm going to be building these cabinets, which good for you. It's building cabinets, plywood boxes is actually very easy. Building the doors and drawers is where you've got to be very careful because it's very easy to make a mistake and you can ruin a lot of material. Anyways, based on what you have there, Sean, I think you've got a really good start. Oh, yeah. You're not going to use the contractor saw as much, but it's a contractor saw. I'm assuming it's a contractor saw, not a job site saw. Yeah. 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 And if it's the contractor saw, you're golden, man. You're just absolutely golden. Uh, the 14-inch bandsaw is more than enough. You've got a planer, so you can, you know, if, uh, if you're doing shaker-style cabinets, I did the same thing. I made all my face frames. Uh, not my face frames. I did Euro-style cabinets. But the faces or the, the, the frames for the panels, for the doors and the, the drawers, all out of poplar. So you've got a planer to do that. Basic router table. That's good. Benchtop driller press. The biggest thing you've got that's going to help you out quite a bit is the Festool track saw. So I'm going to recommend a tool to get that'll help you out on this. And then I'll pass it along to Sean and he Uh can recommend something. Don't take mine. We'll just keep going around (laughs) and, you know, go from there. How does that sound, guys? Sounds good. First thing I would recommend, and I, I I looked at them after Sean just purchased them, which are the parallel guides from TSO products. Uh, I've good. got some, I've got some parallel guides that I purchased from Seneca that use Incra uh, track, and those work really really good too. Mm-hmm. But it's it, it's a little bit more work to to get what you need and get up and running than it is with the TSO. I'd highly recommend something like that. And I would myself, I wouldn't, as far as the plywood goes, I wouldn't even, I wouldn't break down anything on the table saw. I mm. cut it once with the panel saw and parallel guides and be done with it. Yeah. So Sean, what would you recommend for, what would you recommend for Sean, Sean? I would recommend, well, first of all, I just want to touch on, I mean, I know you guys are used to this kind of accuracy you get from track saws. Like I I I still can't believe how accurate (laughs) it is with those things. Like it still blows my mind. It's accurate enough. It look, yes. If there's a discrepancy, I had a a 30 by 30 piece and it was dead nuts. Perfect. Corner to corner blow blew me away with what you can get with that. And it's Mm -hmm. insane. Highly recommend. Yes. Good call guy. I'm going to next say a, uh, and now take it easy on me. I'm just going to say this. I, there's a million different ways to assemble drawers, but I'm going to, or I don't, not even necessarily drawers, but you can use this in multiple different areas of this build. I would say a pocket hole jig. Hmm. And that's without me knowing what you have. You may already have one. I, I don't know either that or a, a, a lamello biscuit joiner, but I'm going to save that. I'm just going to say pocket hole jig. Final answer pocket hole jig man he's got he's got a lot five to ten k to save Whew, man you could get some really he's nice gonna save stuff. a lot more than five to i'm 10K pretty sure he is stuff. maybe that's what he's allotted for i wonder if he's <laughs> looked at the prices and quality of plywood he's able to get oh my goodness yeah, yeah. Expensive these days. um but i'm that's gonna mine. say just because 
you're always going to find a use for it. I'm going to say a domino. Get it a 5 to 10K? Mm-hmm. Yeah, I'd say get a domino. Wait, 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 wait. Are we saying he's going to be spending that 5 to 10K? Well, then, dang, I should have I splurged a little bit more. <laughs> well, I mean, you know. What, and what, what, what benefit would the domino have for what he's doing? Yeah. Where, where would you use it? I mean, you wouldn't, you wouldn't need it for anything that he's building. It just nice, he, another nice tool. <laughs> yeah, that that's the. Th- I will pick. I will. Te- I will uh, take up for Hui. That is for his future projects, guy. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. Um, but 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 I mean, for this project, I don't know. I was gonna say a pocket hole jig, but you already took it from me. Get some. I don't know a biscuit joiner. I'll I'll go with that because he could he could put together carcass with the biscuit joiner. I got another one. Guy, well, your it's turn. My turn. I know. I'm going to recommend <laughs> another TSO product. This is not a an advertisement for TSO, but it's the one I use, which is the, the uh, square, the the track square. Yeah, 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 yeah. yeah. That, and that'll help you break down all the plywood. As far as the the pocket hole jig goes, pocket hole jig would be really really good to help you with the face if you're doing face frames. Yeah, because you can put them put you know you're not going to see the sides of the cabinets. Yep. So you can put pocket holes right in the sides of the cabinets and secure yep. the face frame to the cabinet yeah, using pocket then- screws, and that's a really good application for it. As far as the domino goes, if you did get a domino, you got doors I, to I, forget. I, I was going to say either the, the doors and stuff like that. I would use stub tenons. But the, as far as the, the the drawers go, I'm a big fan of using the four millimeter dominoes on half inch and five inch five eighths inch drawer material. Yeah, I think yeah. those do a really good job with drawers. You could also use the biscuit joiner, and if you're going to get a biscuit joiner and you have that kind of budget, I get the lamella. No, if answer, spend the seven hundred dollars, get the lamello. Do Classic yourself X. a favor. I should have asked you all this question because I just put together four, eight, ten, twelve, thirteen drawers using pocket holes. I should have used the domino. See? This is mm-hmm. what I get for that. This I should have asked this yeah, question. Wait a minute, not, you, not you actually own a domino. <laughs> I know, but I used the pocket hole jig. It was just it was uh, faster, I guess, yeah, for me. I guess. I didn't think okay. about it. I'm not gonna lie. All right. So next uh if if I was putting this together and I knew I was installing this in a kitchen and not just like my shop, like I'm doing now, I would invest money on hardware installation, such as drawer slides or pulls or uh, those type, that type of hardware, any of the installation jigs that you may want to use on that. Yeah. Mm-hmm. You know what I've used to put in uppers, uh, not a lot of one upper, right. Are the, uh, the, fast cap cabinet lift you know what i'm talking about it's like a yeah what the heck is it uh, like a helping hand or something yes 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 those help a lot Uh, those were a huge help guy you can elaborate on the brand or whatever of the hardware jig that you that you use for drilling in there i forgot don't i think don't you have it oh precision uh, oh gosh i'm just trying to help oh the the 
for the drawer handles and stuff? Yes, yes, yes. Yeah, that's true position tools. I wouldn't recommend that if you're going to do just one. I mean, if you're a professional and you're doing it every day. How much are they? Maybe. Oh, they're like three or four hundred dollars. Oh no. I use the I use the Craig. (laughs) I just use the Craig, yeah. Um I thought they were cheaper. No, they're that's very expensive, but it's very, very nice. It's worth every penny if you're a professional. What every about penny if you're a professional? A cup hinge jig. Ah, you know, I use the Craig. At, at work, we I install hundreds of doors. You know what we use? Drill press. The Craig jig. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Okay, that's well, it. Works. Saying. It works. Yeah. really well. Yeah, I had I had the same one. It, it's Woo-hoo. good. Yeah, it really works well. Uh, that and make yourself some kind of jig to do the drawer slides that go on the cabinet, whether it's just a, a, a homemade jig, which I've used, or there's other jigs out there that will do 32 millimeter spacing Yeah, with the 37 millimeter setback, which is what you need for if you're going to do under, under mount drawer slides. So, yeah. I just had fun with installing 12 drawer slides. And if there is a jig for that, what I ended up doing was um, the bottom drawer was a quarter inch off of the bottom. So then I installed that using a quarter inch piece of plywood. And then every uh, hinge or every slide was three quarters of an inch above the drawer below it. So I just set three quarter inch piece of ply as a shim, installed it three quarter shim, installed it all the way up. And that made it a heck of a lot easier. Were they we're, side mount drawer slides? Yeah, 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 yeah. yeah. Not bottom. I'm not hey, that guy, fancy. For the, for the undermount drawer slides, you're talking about a 37 millimeter setback. Is that for Euro cabs? Yes. Okay, gotcha. Not 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 necessarily if he was doing face frames, right? Correct. And it's okay. 37 millimeter setback, I think. For No, maybe I'm mistaken on that. No, it's 37 millimeter setback on the first hole. Gotcha. Yeah, yeah. Mm-hmm. So the first set of holes. Yeah, I, th- I think yeah. that's what it is. Uh, I don't know. I'm talking out my ass again. So, anyways, um, I hope that helps, Sean. It did. You know, those are <laughs> those are just little things that I think that would really help you out. You've got the big tools already. Yeah. And if you can swing it, I'd highly suggest looking and investing in a good hvlp sprayer Mm. to spray the finish on it you will be very glad that you have an hvlp system to finish these cabinets if it's a full kitchen all right i think the questions go back to hui now yep this is from peter hey again love the podcast and the advice you give recently you answered why i suck at hinges and one reason mentioned was the cheap hardware I often use. This led me to another thought. When do you buy the hardware for a project? Before you begin or once it's all all made? I tend to wait until after the project is made, and unfortunately, that also means I sometimes struggle to find hardware that will work. I've been known to buy many different sets of hinges to take home and see how, how they look on a box, or even carried boxes into Rockler to try them to try there. I've also ran into the issue of fit. I recently made a shoe shine box and when I plane the lumber, 
I just ran it through until I thought it looked good. It, I, I didn't measure at all. But when I went to buy hinges, the odd sizing left me with hinges that were either too big and stuck out or not strong enough for the weight of the lid shoe support. I ended up with external hinges that I didn't like and, and three of them for strength, all because I didn't plan ahead. My wife likes it, but what does what does she know about design? Ooh, <laughs> I hope she doesn't listen. Yeah, uh, I, I doubt she is. <laughs> um, I typically will design with a certain hardware in mind. And I haven't made a lot of boxes, uh, but when I was in the process of making a traveling tool chest like yours guy, which I never ended up finishing, uh, I had a certain set of hinges from Lee Valley in mind uh, that I wanted to use. There were these, you know, shiny brass, brass hinges and then, you know, brass handles and whatnot that I wanted to use. And so I sort of designed around that. I think that's, I think Peter, in your case, that might've helped you a little bit uh, because you probably wanted to use a prettier hinge or something that concealed a little bit better uh, than what you have with the external hinges. And I think that probably would have helped you. Sean, how about you? I know you've, you've been doing a lot of boxes. Do you always have like a hinge that you go to and you kind of design around or do you have an idea of what you want the box to look like and then kind of figure out what hinges will work best? Basically when you're building a box, I mean, I'll have some hinges on hand, but there's like a rule of thumb that at least I go by the thickness of a box is it's going to need to either be at least a half of an inch for most of the hinges that I use or, you know, upwards, if it's a bigger box, at least three quarters of an inch. Otherwise the hinges will be too small. I rarely, if ever, if I'm using hinges, stray away from those two thicknesses, but I'm mostly, if I'm making a box, that's like a, an heirloom box, a watch box or whatever, I'm sticking with half inch ply that's veneered on both sides. And that's going to allow me to use quite a few hinges, um, that are available on the market from either Brusso um, Horton brasses or Rockler with whatever jig, uh, and they're going to look good. They're going to give me, you know, the, the positive stops or the butt hinge that you can mortise. Again, that's, that's going to fit the half inch thickness of the material that I use. If you're using thicker material, three quarters is going to work well, especially like with doors. If I'm using, if I'm going to mortise a door and then I'm working with at least three quarter of an inch sidewall thickness or three quarter of an inch board, uh, door thickness, or if I'm using a cabinet door, it's three quarters of an inch thickness at least uh, that, you know, those type of uh, uh, bloom hinges and all that stuff will work. But basically I stick with those thicknesses and know that if I stay with that, I can pretty much design it. And if I don't have the hinges on hand, I'll find something that looks good. That's in stock guy. guy? What? <laughs> Sorry. It was a little bit of dead space there. I didn't want to. I was like, did I say something no, wrong? I, no, I, I, I agree with all that stuff. I, I mean, I, I'm kind of a planner in some respects and in some respects I'm not the, to me, the design and construction of the piece is dynamic and fluid in most cases. However, that being said, in regards to the hardware, I always purchase that ahead of time. 
I know exactly what I need to do to that piece. It's like, no, I can't do that because these hinges won't let me. Or I can't do that because I'm using this latch because mm-hmm. I've, I've picked it out ahead of time. And I usually, you know, if it's for my own stuff or my family stuff, it's usually expensive crap. And I don't want to send it back and get hit yeah. with a 10% restock fee. Yeah. Um, so I've just always done, I've always been in the habit of doing that. I, I say, I'm going to do this piece. Okay. I'm going to do this kind of door. I'm going to do this kind of drawer. I'm going to do this kind of thing here. What kind of hardware I want. I buy a lot of hardware from Lee Valley. Yeah. They have a tremendous selection of high quality hardware. My first stop is always Horton Brass, but they do not have the selection. That really? Lee Valley. Oh, no. Oh, no. They don't. Okay. No. I, I, I it's very know. limited for boxes. Oh, yeah. Okay. It's very limited for just about anything. They, they make very, what they make is extremely good, but you know, they may have like 200 SKUs or 300 SKUs, a, a, a stock keeping unit, things they physically stock. While Lee Valley has probably three or 4,000. Their they're, catalogs they're, are nice. Yeah. It just goes on and on forever. The amount of stuff they have. You can always find what you're looking for at Lee Valley and once a month they run by $30, get free shipping. Yeah. So that's what I wait for. And I usually do it then. Stock up on everything and buy it all at once. I buy, buy everything all at once. And if I, like I said, if, if Horton Brass doesn't have what I'm looking for, my next stop is Lee Valley. But I always go to Horton Brass first. And is it the same case with Brusso? Like there's only a certain amount of selection the, the Brusso, i only buy if i don't have it and i need it now because i can mm. go to rockler or woodcraft and buy it ah they're a little that's a little the more expensive thing. and they're pricey as hell yeah i said a, a, a i went the other day to to look at some hinges for a wall cabinet i made they wanted 60 dollars for these little one inch hinges I'm like, you are insane. I'm not paying that much. Yeah. Is is Rockler a registered distributor? Yeah. I did not know that. Okay. Rockler's, Rockler. Well, I've got a, a Rockler and a Woodcraft within 15 minutes of my house. Nice. I'm lucky. So, yeah. But anyways, that's the only time I buy Brusso. They're, uh, they're very high quality stuff. I like for boxes, I like their um, 110 degree. Yes. Positive stop hinges. Mm-hmm. Those are really, really nice. Yes. I couldn't uh, think of that earlier. Yes. Yeah. I really like those. Do they still run the one year sale on those? I think they um, used to have like a once a year sale one year, like the whole year. Uh, no, uh, once a year sale, I think on, on a certain hinge that were really popular for box making. I it's probably don't. that one. If it is, if there is one. Okay. All right. Well, I guess I've got the next one here. This one is from Goron from Nomad Makes. Hi, guys, and thanks again for making the ultimate, remember that episode, woodworking (laughs) podcast. And by the way, (laughs) thanks for answering my last question. I live in Bergen, Norway, and a small local timber merchant is selling beech, I guess it's European beech, and alder, again, European alder, I believe, at quite a reasonable price. Here in Norway, poplar is not readily available. 
Given a choice between the two, which would you choose as a secondary wood for drawers and parts that won't be seen? And if you were to make furniture project wholly out of one of them, which would you choose? And of course, why? Both are rated as perishable. The beach is a quite a lot harder. The beach is quite a lot harder according to the Jenka scale, 6460 versus the 2890, which is the alder. The beach is supposedly superb for steam bending, but I have yet to get there in my skill set, and both seem to have quite good workability. I'm not sure I appreciate the Rayfleck look or the slight yellow look on the beach that I have seen, but that may be fixed during finishing if other attributes make it worthwhile. I have, however, little experience with Alder. Looking forward to your discussions on this. Thanks. Well, I think that you've pretty much have answered this yourself between the beach and the Alder. I will say just for reference here, he mentions that the beach has a Janka harness of 6460 and the Alder has a Janka harness of 2890 and Poplar is a 540. So those are quite a bit harder than than Poplar. And and I think that number alone would help me determine uh, which to use for secondary woods. Uh, I'm guessing both of these are going to be lighter color woods. So I would, I would choose the softer one with alder. Um, I would not want to work 6460 hardness as, as my secondary wood. If I could get away with something softer, it's, you know, they're both, and you mentioned that you don't like the, the yellow look of the beach or the ray fleck. I think that I would choose alder uh, 100%. And I would also choose alder depending on the look you're going for in the finish for a, uh, the the main lumber for the projects that you're wanting to put together and not just the secondary. So out of those two, my vote gets, uh, my vote is, is for the, the alder uh, just surely due to the Jenka scale. I would not want to work something that hard for secondary material. And that's, that's kind of my answer on that. Yeah. I, I kind of agree with that myself. I've never even, I don't think I've ever even seen alder. Really? Nope. Nope. Never seen it. It, really? there, there, there just isn't any here. Yeah, I've never. It may be available. I've yeah. just never seen it. The only my only experience with beach is, I have a a, a Joburg's workbench that's made out of it. Yeah, it's pretty hard. It's pretty hard, and it's yeah. a, it's kind of like a pinkish red color. You know, I'm 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 with you, Sean. You know, the, the for a secondary for me, secondary wood means like dividers and, and cabinets that you won't see or drawer bottoms and things like that. Yeah. So if that's the case, yeah, I'd go with the the lower hardness thing. Uh, I'm sure alder is a pretty enough wood. I'm sure it looks a lot like cherry. Does it? Yeah, yeah, just a lighter color. Yeah. A lot of people use it in substitution of cherry. Yep. It's cheaper. Yep. Yeah. yeah. Poor man's cherry. Yeah. yeah. Uh, the uh, beach tenons, I mean, dominoes, that's the only experience I've had with beach. <laughs> <laughs> well, actually, no, I, I have I have used a Schoberg uh, workbench before, and they're, yeah, they're pretty hard. They're pretty hard. But yeah, I, I would go Alder 100%. Can you imagine having to build like six, eight, ten drawers out of stuff that hard Ugh. yeah well well i mean we make stuff out of hard maple and i'm pretty sure it's right up there with everything else yeah i don't have that scale you know in front of me but let me see what that is i'm, I'm curious too uh it is a it is a yeah 6450 
So yeah, it's exactly yeah, like same as that, beach. The hard stuff, yeah. Yeah, it's hard maple sucks to work with. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I keep keep telling the people at work stop buying hard maple, buy soft maple. Yeah, and soft maple's plenty hard too. Yeah, but it, Even, it's a lot easier to work. For sure. And it's it's a lot more stable. Yep. So I hope that helps him. Hope so too. I think Guy, okay. you've got the last question. You got the last question. This is from Joshua. And Joshua asks, Hey guys, my question is about pricing your woodworking and getting past imposter syndrome. Dun, dun, dun. Dun, dun, dun. What I think he means by imposter syndrome is saying that you're the best craftsman in the world and my work is worth $8 million and you should buy it because I built it kind of thing, even though you're only built a birdhouse. <laughs> I have recently started making some items for a group of <laughs> dog breed enthusiasts, and I have experienced a substantial growth in demand for items that fall much more into the art category than the furniture category. Well, that's good. As a hobbyist woodworker, I do not have a huge portfolio of work that I've sold, only a few items here and there. Moving forward, I plan on building into a more substantial business. I obviously want to price my work at what it's worth, but I can be very self-conscious about my skills and tend to undervalue what I'm worth. I obviously want to sell as much as I can, but how do I sell my work at a value that gets it out into the world without setting a low bar price-wise for the future? I am my own harshest critic, Joshua. Joshua, what you're describing is the same thing just about everybody goes through. Mm-hmm. Yep. I mean, it's 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 a tough question. And I, and I took this question, we've touched on this several times, but I think it's time to talk about it again. And he really worded this well and, and explained his feelings on it. Pricing to me it's not only pricing your stuff for what it's what you're worth. I'm a big believer in selling things at market price. So let me give you an example. Let's say you built a, a dog house because you're a dog breed enthusiast. You build these very nice dog houses. Okay. You look at Lowe's and they're selling, I don't know if they sell them or not. Let's say they're selling dog house or pet smart or something like that. I bet they're not cheap. I bet they're five, six hundred bucks for a doghouse. You take into consideration. So that's to me, that's the price. That is the market price. I don't know really know what it is, but let's say that is the market price, the five, six hundred bucks. Now, you've got somebody that comes to you and says, Hey, Joshua. I want you to build this for me. I want you to build it like this. And I want the doorway to look like this. And I want little windows in here and a little flower boxes underneath. Can you do that for me? Sure. Well, well, how much? Well, considering that, you know, the, the going price is five, 600 bucks. And you're asking me for all these different things. That's going to take me all this extra time. Price it accordingly. Yep. Say, say, Instead of five six hundred dollars, it's going to be eight nine hundred dollars. What's your time worth? And if they, 
the one thing that I always used to tell people, they say, well, you know, why is this table $8,000? Well, you're asking me, you have, you have asked me to give up three months of my life to make this table for you because I'm doing it on the weekends. Yep. You're asking me to give up two to three months of my life on the weekends. And I always look at them, what's your time worth? That's what my time is worth. And I'm worth that much. You have to have the conviction to say, that's what my time is worth. And I'm worth that much. And I, I, I know you're your own harshest critic, Joshua, but I bet you're a lot better than you think you are. Because there's clowns on Craigslist selling crap and selling it for a lot more money than you think they, they are. Trust me. What, what do you think about this, Lee? You sell stuff to the, you know, you've got clients you work with. You're muted. Lee? Lee, are you there? He's sorry, I muted myself. Why? <laughs> because I was. Uh, Were you drinking was... mineral oil again? <laughs> I, didn't, I didn't want. I didn't want you to hear what was. Is it like? Is like? Is it like the the, the laxative scene from? Um, is mineral oil uh, like Pepto Bismol? Dumb, dumb and Dumber. Oh gosh! Oh, <laughs> drinking please. mineral oil again. No, I, I mute the He's I mute the, the mic because I got a baby. I got dogs. I got mineral yeah. oil. Yeah, Mineral. You're, 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 you're drinking laxatives. <laughs> yeah. Well, you, you hit here that um, much more into the art category than the mm -hmm. furniture category, yep. which is which means that you've got something special there, Joshua. Which means that you're doing something that others are not like that. These folks are not able to get from PetSmart or Lowe's or wherever that they have to come to you because you've got the skill to be able to do what these people want specialized. So that's yeah, custom work. Folks got to pay for that. Yep. Right. So if you want, if folks want something off the shelf, then they'll pay off the shelf prices. If they want something custom, they have to pay for custom work prices. And like you said, guy, I think that's a great starting point of what the baseline is, not where your pricing is, but what baseline would be. As a, as a starting point of, well, this is what the market will bear, right? So yep. we know what the market will bear. You can expect that my work is going to be more expensive than that because I'm one person doing a specialized thing for a very special client. And I think once you kind of get into that mindset, you know, then and and be comfortable with the price that you set and and set it to a point where, okay, if I don't, if I don't change anything, right? If, if if this is the quality that I can expect to give out going forward, what would be, what am I comfortable accepting for my work, but also for the business as well? Yeah. Sean? I think that you guys have covered quite a bit of it, but I, I, I will touch on it from a, coming from a different angle. Um, you know, Joshua, you mentioned that you plan on building into a more substantial business and you're not going to be able to do that if you keep undervaluing and underpricing your work about the only way that you're going to be able to do that is if you're large enough, have the demand and have enough staff to build enough of these so that you can lower the price due to the bulk work, but you're just starting out. You're going to have to price it accordingly so that you can help build this into a more substantial business so that you can perhaps do this full time and not have to do this on nights and weekends. And the only way to do that is if you replace your salary. And the only way to do that is if you raise the price to what it should be based off of the market demands. 
And if every, every one of these that you sell under, obviously until you get a portfolio built up, um, you, you're just, you're just leaving money on the table to help you turn this into a, uh, into a business. And, you know, pricing is the hardest thing when it comes to woodworking. But if you want to build this into a substantial business, you've got to price it right so that you can do this full time and scale this up accordingly. And then, you know, perhaps with the, the volume, you can lower the price a little bit, but you've got to get going. Yeah. And, and he, in his last sentence there, he says something to me that's very profound. It says, how do I sell my work at a value that gets that gets it out into the world without setting a low bar price-wise for the future? That is probably one of the most important things that you can do, Joshua. Because if you become that guy yep. that sells it cheap, you will always, always, always be the cheap guy. Because once you start selling this stuff, a lot of your work is going to come from referrals. And if you charge Jim down the street $900 or $500 for that doghouse, and now Bill at the other end of the street wants to buy one at $900, his buddy, he knows how much Jim paid for it. Well, why am I not getting it at that price? You'll never get away from it. Yep. Just never get away from it. Yeah, you're going to price yourself into not being successful, not yep. making profits, not start being Start out start out high. It's a lot easier if you if you've ever worked in sales. It's a lot easier to start high and discount. It's very hard to start low and add on. Yeah. So take that's, that for what it's worth. And that's true with every email we get from Netflix saying they're raising their prices. <laughs> <laughs> right. Joshua, another thing, you know, just to just to hit on something that Guy said again, it's always easier to come down. And when you do give a discount to somebody, because every now and then we do that, right? When you give a discount to somebody on the invoice, make sure you list what that discount was so yeah. that they know, hey, by the way, I gave you 20% here. That way they can't go to somebody else and say, well, he gave me it for that price. It's like, yeah. well... I gave you the, you know, best friend discount or whatever it is, right? But make sure you list that discount on there. That's a good tip. Yeah. All right. Um, can Anything I correct else? one? Can I correct one thing on our last conversation about the Janka hardness? Uh -huh. That that sixty four sixty and twenty eight ninety is Newton, Newtons. Yeah. So, oh, okay, Poplar, gotcha. Poplar is twenty twenty Newtons. So that's where like that number comes Newtons? from. Yes. <laughs> Hard maple is 64.50 newtons. So that's where these numbers are. They're not pounds, they're newtons that we're, that we're talking about. Just wanted to correct that. Okay. Now we can continue. <laughs> <laughs> Good correction. We're going to talk about what we got going on in the shop. Why don't you uh, go first there, Sean? Uh-oh. Okay. Well, I, uh, over the weekend... Last weekend was fighting with a broken fridge, so I didn't get much done. So, But this weekend, I was able to get all four, eight, 10, 12, 13, show, uh, 13 drawers built, 12 of those mounted on drawer slides, man, recording things really slows you down. Um, oh yeah. Oh yeah. Especially drawers. Cause I'm like drawer slides. I'm like, how am I going to get this camera in here and film this? But you're going to see my fat head in the picture, but just ignore that when you're looking, watching the video. So I got that done. The last thing I have, I think I'm going to make it a multi-part video 
But the next thing I need to do is I've got two pieces of three quarter inch plywood for the tops. I'm going to laminate those together with uh, some glue and probably some temporary screws that may come, may or may not come out. And then I got to make drawer fronts probably out of walnut and edge the top with probably walnut and then put the miter saw in its place and then call it done for now. Are you sticking with the same miter saw, the Hitachi? Yeah, for now. For now. Okay. Just wondering. Hui, what do you got going on? Uh, Working on this double dresser, I milled up a whole, speaking of soft maple, I milled up a whole bunch of soft maple that will be drawers uh, for this double double dresser. So uh, got them milled up to five eighths of an inch because some of them are not tall enough. I've got to glue some of them up and then I'll do a final milling down to half inch for the half inch stock that I'll use for the uh, undermount drawer slides. Guy, how about you? Nothing. Nothing, got nothing going on in my shop. You got a lot going on in the other shop, though. I got, yeah, I got a lot of work going on in the other shop, and it's it's all the same thing to me over there. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, like today, I came in, I was working on this one thing. It was a small little project, and they come over and they say, well, we got to make 300 coasters. Uh, yeah. All that means is I got to make 300 pieces of wood that are four inch by four inch by quarter inch thick. Oh boy. So it's a lot of resawing and cutting. Uh, last time lot. we got an order for those were 1200. Gosh. Um, it took me about three hours to do all that. Then I built a cabinet to put hardware in. Because we, we, although we buy hardware, but sometimes we buy too much and we've got all this extra hardware laying around and it's just in little, some of it's over here and some of it's over here and some of it's over here and some of it's over here. And it's just, it's just all over the place. So I had some scrap plywood and I had some extra time. So I built this pretty quick. That's actually 30 by 30 by 15 inches deep. So with a shelf in it, stationary shelf for, to put that stuff on. That was, that was my day pretty much. Nice. Yeah. I saw that, uh, that one conference table that you took a picture of is 26 feet long. Is that right? 26 feet long. Holy three separate pieces. Oh yeah. Yeah. Solid cherry. Wow. That's they're, huge. They're still working on it. <laughs> Eventually they'll finish it. <laughs> uh, I think that's going to do it for this show. And we would like to also thank everyone who left us a five-star review on iTunes. It really does help us out in the surge rankings. And of course, it really makes us feel good. <laughs> but we, we, do, we, we do appreciate the Spartan feedback. And also remember this podcast is here to answer questions from the woodworking community. So if you do have woodworking questions you like answered, you can send them to the podcast through the contact page at woodshoplifepodcast.com or DM us through Instagram at woodshoplife. Myself, I can be found on pretty much all social media as Guy's Woodshop. Um, where can you be found, Hui? alabamawoodworker.com and all the links to my social media are on my website. And Sean? 
simplecove.com at simplecove on social media. All right. Very good, gentlemen. And uh, it was nice to be back and get this recorded. And uh, we'll talk to you again in a couple of weeks. Talk to you in a couple. See See you later. Bye.